Well, good morning, and uh, it's just been um, awesome to be walking through this series together. Before we get into the text, though, I just want to thank those who participated in the Hack uh, Housing Assistance Corporation Walkathon last Sunday. I have some good news. Uh, we, once again this year, were the top team fundraiser for the Housing Assistance Corporation Walkathon. Good job, everybody. And however you participated, whether it was giving, walking, or praying in support of the church, thank you for that. Uh, God gave me an opportunity personally last week. I had the immense privilege of reading the scriptures to 129 of our fellow community members. And uh, yeah, you can clap for that. That's kind of cool. I got to read uh, Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, which is a verse that just grows and grows and grows in my heart. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And as we think about our role as the church, uh, we can play a significant role in that way. We can model the heart of God for people. After all, when you look at the scriptures, you have the second greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. You have the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do to you. And as I think about this issue of housing, I think to myself, boy, if I didn't have a roof over my head, I would want someone to speak up for me. I would want that. Now, we also, in the month of June, are going to do another emphasis. This month has been Missional May. Next month is a time to serve. And I believe as a church, as we continue to develop hearts for servanthood, we are going to see God move in a powerful way. After all, Jesus said to his disciples, the greatest among you, shall be your servant. I love that. You know, when greatness is defined in the kingdom of God, it is through the servant of God's servitude. And, and when you think about that as being a measure for greatness, it's a measure that anyone can do. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter what your last name is, doesn't matter how much money sits in your bank account. Anyone can be great in the kingdom of God because what? Anyone can serve. So, our heart in June is just to find some opportunities to serve. They might be humble opportunities, they're opportunities with different ability levels involved. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you are faithfully serving in the way that Jesus did. And I believe that as we continue to go in this direction as a church, we're going to see God move in significant ways. But we serve to create relationships. I want you to understand that. As sometimes we just can get in church settings where it's like, let's just go do good deeds and, and do things, and wouldn't it be really nice to do that kind of stuff? We're doing it because everything's relational. We want to create connections with people. We want to be invested in their lives. Uh, we're looking at this series, Jesus Conversations, and we've been asking the question, well, how did Jesus influence others? How did he engage others with the good news? 
And we've been walking through the Gospel of John, various vignettes, and we've been extrapolating principles from Jesus' way of doing this. Now, last week, I said that there was a, a really big obstacle in our way to sharing Jesus. And I said it was time. And I said, perhaps that's the greatest obstacle in our way with sharing Jesus. But actually, this week, I want to take that back. I think there's an even greater obstacle. And I think the obstacle is us. I think we're the problem. I read a book a couple of years ago, and the title of the book was Leadership and Self-Deception. It's from the Arbinger Institute. An easy little read. It almost reads like a parable. And the main point of the book is this. It says that we commit little acts of self-betrayal on a regular basis. And here's the act of self-betrayal. I feel I should do something for another person and I choose not to do it. A little act of self-betrayal, so simple. Think about it. I'm, I'm at a, a store. I'm checking out. I, I look across the, the counter at the, the cashier, and I, I notice that he looks tired. He looks hurried. Maybe you look beneath the surface, and you're like, it seems like he's living a really hard sort of life. And in my mind, in that moment, I feel like I should do something for him. Maybe it's just simply acknowledging him with a question or a kind word or something along those lines. But instead of doing that, I betray myself in the moment. I look down at that little card reader machine. I focus in on it. I finalize my transaction and I say nothing. Now, they argue in the book that these little acts of self-betrayal send us into an inward spiral, and it looks something like this. First, I betray myself. I feel called to act. I do contrary to the act. Second, when I betray myself, I begin to see the world in a way that justifies my self-betrayal. I start telling myself a little narrative. Well, it's okay that I didn't say that in that moment. After all, I was busy. Or he didn't want me to say anything. He wouldn't have cared if I said anything. I justify myself. I tell myself a story. Now, here's the third. When I see the world in a self-justifying way, my view of reality becomes distorted. And then fourth, I, when I betray myself, I enter into a box. In fact, they call it the box. Now, what is the box? Well, it's a self-contained way of living. I can't see others clearly. I stop seeing myself clearly because I'm justifying myself. It's basic selfishness. And because I justify myself, I begin to believe that my actions are never selfish. I start telling myself, well, I'm actually a pretty good person. I do good things. I think good thoughts. I'm great. And over time... Certain boxes become characteristic of me, and I carry them with me. I become cynical. I become critical. Oh, I would have done it this way. I become judgmental. I become 
greedy. By being in the box, I then provoke other people to get into the box. Have you been out in society lately? Have you noticed how people are just kind of living this boxy life? You see it on the road. You see it in the stores. People don't look each other in the eyes. Neighbors don't say hi to one another. People are living this boxy existence. And I'm just going to say this morning that I'm the first to admit that I get in the box. I do it. But as we look at the text this morning, we're going to notice that Jesus never goes into the box. He lives in outside-the-box existence. And we're going to see it in a, a very incredible story in John chapter 9. So let me read the first seven verses, and we'll walk through this story together. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now, as I read the text here, and I translate this passage, I believe there should be a sentence right there, or a, a period right there, end of sentence, and then move into another sentence. So hear it like that but that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me. In other words, he's not making a theological statement about this man being born this way so that God might do a work right now, but other, he, he's saying God receives glory when we do the works of God, a very different way of seeing the passage. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, a lot of you have been telling me as you go through these vignettes in John that you think about that series, The Chosen. You can kind of see Jesus operating. Some of you probably saw the scene at the woman of the well. And I would encourage you that as you go into the scriptures to slow down and visualize scenes, I think that's a good thing. Let's visualize the first two verses together. This is the Feast of Tabernacle season. Of course, there's a buzz and an electricity in the air, and Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem, and he has an entourage, and he's engaging people, and they're throwing questions at him. And suddenly, as he's walking down the street, the entourage comes to a halt. He's looking at a man that no one ever sees. And he's looking intensely at him. And, and perhaps, if you could read the expression on his face, you would see compassion. And the disciples, of course, they're stopping as he's stopping, and they're looking at him, and they're looking at the man, and then they're looking at him again. And then one of the bright disciples decides that he's going to ask a theological question. So he says to Jesus, well, which of, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? 
Now, is that the right question to ask? ask in the moment as you're looking at Jesus pausing and looking at this blind man with compassion. No, he's in the box. And the reason he's in the box is because you have a theological system where that's not an uncommon question to be asking. You see, the blind man had probably heard this line of reasoning his entire life. It was common in the Jewish belief system to believe that such defects had originated from sinfulness, whether from the parents or from this man in some way. So they're looking at this guy on a recurring basis, walking down the road and saying to themselves, he's like that because he's tainted. I can't do anything about that. I can't change his situation. If anything, if I do stop and I do do an act of kindness, well, it's an act of benevolence. I'm extra merciful. I'm helping someone that deserves to be like this. And I wonder how often we engage in similar thought processes. Unbeknownst to us, we've been living in a world making certain assumptions, and the assumptions have been passed to us, and and we look at someone and we start justifying ourselves and think, oh boy, I know he's got a hard dynamic in his life right now, but he made a lot of bad choices. He made his bed. He's here because of what he did. We're in the box. And guess what? We create boxes for other people. Like I said, it's a boxy kind of world. And ask yourself the question, how are we going to have meaningful Jesus conversations with people if we're in a box and we're placing them in a box? In the book, the authors, sharing Jesus without freaking out, the authors suggest this. Few things into conversation or destroy a relationship faster than assuming we know a person because of who they vote for, what they look like, or where they come from. People are people. We're parents, we're children, we're employees, we're friends, and we mostly all share the same concerns. We have fears about the future, guilt about our past, and are looking for something to help us get through life successfully and do something important with our time here. I can't advance the gospel while I'm living in the box. And again, Jesus never went into the box. I think about his words in Matthew chapter 9. I love this passage. It tells us that the crowds are gathered around him. He sees the crowds, and the text says that he has compassion for them because they were harassed. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Maybe you remember that passage. 
Now, if I'm living in the box, I'm never going to look up at the harassed crowds and see that the harvest is plentiful. I'm going to say they don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't need to hear about Jesus. They're happy living the way that they're already living right now. But Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful. Why? Because people are searching. They don't want to keep living the way that they're living. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I said, we can ask people the question, how's that working for you? How's that going? God has put a homing beacon in the heart of people where they want more. They want to be fulfilled. They know that they were meant for more than just this life in this world. And they need a friend to come alongside and to share the truth so that they can see Jesus for who he is. Jacqueline, you're sitting in the right place this week, so I know where you are now. <laughs> but I thought it was so cool last week in your video when you said, I got outside of the box. You were like, I didn't think she would want to have Bible study, but what did she do? She asked. And then in the video, Karen's like, oh, I wanted to have Bible study. I thought that was so cool. The harvest is plentiful. People are searching. Uh, Kim Range, just this last week, uh, she's been in my book reading class, and I challenged the class for 14 days to pray every single day, God give me an opportunity. She starts praying that prayer. She's on Facebook, and of all places, the Holy Spirit prompts her on Facebook to reach out to a friend that she hasn't connected with for, get this, 20 three years. She reaches out to the friend. The friend connects in a friend request on Facebook. The friend goes on Kim's page and starts seeing her devotional life and the scriptures on the page. And the friend then privately messages her and says, I notice how much scripture is on your page. I need God in my life. Can you tell me about that? The harvest is plentiful. People are searching. What causes this story to even take place is Jesus seeing the blind man because he's not in the box. Do you see people? Do you see your server? Do you see your next door neighbor? Katie started seeing our neighbors. She took one of our neighbors a gift for Mother's Day. She just learned our next-door neighbor's having a baby soon. She's seeing them. Do you see the person who comes into church the first time and feels anxious because they don't know what to expect? Do you see the, the little children running through the lobby and in the multi-purpose space and grabbing those extra cupcakes? <laughs> Do you see the destitute person? Do you see the incarcerated do you see that person living in that remote place who's never heard the name of Jesus uttered not even once? Do you see them? And what happens when we start seeing people is we bring the light of Jesus into their world and their lives get radically changed. And that's really cool in this story because this guy gets activated. Now, some of you like your little crime podcasts or your CSI. I know how you do. 
I think it's a little crazy, but it's cool if that's you, if that's what you like to do. This is going to be intriguing to you because this guy in the next section, this man who was formerly blind, he starts getting interrogated. In fact, there are four interrogations. Isn't that interesting? His only crime, he's been healed. So we'll pick up with the first interrogation. It begins in verse 9. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Now, what's interesting in this dynamic is there is so much confusion over this miracle that they're debating whether this is the same guy. And he keeps saying, I am, I am, I am. And they're so confused that the next thing they do is they take this guy to religious court, to the Pharisees. You've got to figure this out. We don't know what to make of it. So we get into our second interrogation. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a, is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Now, this little squabble over the Sabbath that we see play out in the interrogation has to do with the rabbinic law. And you'll notice that John notes twice in that interrogation, he spit and made mud and put it in the man's eyes. So two times, that's restated. Uh, the rabbinic law was not the law of God. I can't take you into the Bible and show you a place where it says, thou shalt not make mud on the Sabbath. They created these laws to set up a gate around the law of God. And they believed that it was sinful to make clay on the Sabbath. So that little act of healing Jesus has sinned in their minds. Some of them would even go so far as to say that any act of healing in general was a sin. Jesus pushed back against that. He viewed that interpretation of the law as compassionless. You might recall what he said in Matthew 12. He said, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, he's saying the religious system is broken if you have more compassion for sheep than you do for people. And here they are. Some are calling him sinful. Others are like, I don't know. I mean, this seems like a sign to me. What do we do with this? So they decide that they need to corroborate the story. 
Was this man really born blind from birth? Which is kind of interesting. Because you would think that if he lived in their area, that they would have known about him, but he was so inconsequential that they didn't even know if he was born blind from birth. So they call in his parents. Third interrogation, we're at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And asked him, asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, uh, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. And we get this little parenthetical statement from John. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they know that this is not a trial, it is now a witch hunt. And they say, let him speak for himself. And let me tell you this, oh boy, does he ever speak for himself. We get to the fourth interrogation. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know but one thing I do know, that I was blind, now I see. I love that response in the text, and it actually brings out a principle in evangelism. The principle is this, that people are already interested in what is best for them. And the gospel is best for all people. Notice the point of contention here. They want him to declare that Jesus is a sinner, that he's done something wrong in this instance. But this guy, he's looking at the total dynamic, the total picture, and he's like, my life's a lot better right now. I'm not going to call him a sinner. I was blind. Now I see. It's pretty simple when you boil it down to the essence of what it is. Think about his life before this. I mean, darkness is all the guy has ever known. He's never seen colors. He's never seen red or orange or blue or green. He's never seen the changes of the seasons. He didn't see that it gets green when it's springtime. He's never watched a sunset. Can you imagine living your whole life and never seeing a sunset? In fact, perhaps in this interrogation, it's the first time the man's ever seen the face of his own mother. He's not going to say that Jesus is a sinner in this dynamic. It's pretty simple, right? People are interested in what is best for them. You are and I am. If you're a grandparent, you want to be a better grandparent. 
or a parent, you want to be a better parent. If you're a spouse, you want to be a better husband or wife within your marriage. If you're at work, you want to be the best employee that you can possibly be. When you're out in just civilized society, you want to be the best neighbor that you can be. And what we see from the gospel is this reality. That apart from Jesus, you can't be all that God created you to be. And this man is in the process of becoming all that God intended for him to become. And he comes to this realization, and it creates this powerful boldness in him. Let's pick up at verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? Now, that's the moment in the conversation where the people in the background are like, ooh, and they get mad. The text says, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, and you can tell he's a little frosty now. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The best theological statement made in this passage, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. As I think about this man's interaction, what characterizes him most is the word boldness. It's boldness. It's an interesting word. We throw around the word boldness a lot in Christian circles. Oh, if I was just more bold, well, then, then I would share Jesus with people, or then I would serve others in the way that I should, or then I would be a leader like God wants me to be. Let me ask you, what does that word even mean? What is boldness? Well, I can tell you some things that it's not. It's not being belligerent. It's not being overbearing. It's not being socially awkward. I love what this seminary professor says about boldness. He says, boldness in evangelism is simply going one step beyond your comfort zone. One step. We can exercise boldness all the time. That's our definition of boldness. Boldness comes from this place. The man knew what happened to him. They could say whatever they wanted to say. They could try to get him to say whatever they wanted to say about Jesus. But he knew what happened to him. He knew that he was a changed life. We talk about it in terms of saying a person has a powerful testimony. 
He knew what he knew, and he wasn't going to back down on what he knew. Let me ask you, has Jesus done something powerful in your life? Has he changed you? Is he continuing to work in your life? It's not just the point of salvation where I have a testimony. I have lots of testimonies. How has God worked in your life? When you draw from that source, that well, it creates a powerful boldness within you. Now, this man, as a result of his boldness, is kicked out for Jesus two really severe consequences to his boldness. The first, they go back to the original question of verse two, who sinned, this man or his parents, and they say, you were born in utter sin. How dare you talk to us? They're throwing that old narrative back into his face. You're nothing, you're nobody, we don't need to listen to you. And then the text says that he is excommunicated from the synagogue. Now, that's like a big deal. That's more than just saying, you know what? I'm not going to this church anymore. I'm going to go to that church over there. This is like the center of public life, and you are now labeled as an outcast for the rest of your life. He's kicked out for Jesus. As you share Jesus, what do you think is the worst thing that could happen to you? I doubt the consequences would be this severe. I perhaps think that maybe someone would say, I'm not interested in having that conversation. Maybe some slight ridicule, and, and I can just simply respond, okay, and move on. But regardless of what consequences you experience, even if you are kicked out for Jesus, you will never be kicked out by Jesus. The text shows us that. When we pick up at verse 35, it says that Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. What I want to highlight about this man from this story is you'll notice that evangelism is a process. His understanding of Jesus changes, it grows in awareness along the way. You see it through the, the ways that he refers to Jesus in the passage. First in verse 10, he's a man called Jesus. Then you get to verse 17, he's a prophet. Then you get to verse 33. He's from God. But most significant is this interplay of words in verse 36 and verse 38. The word in the Greek is kurios. And it can have two meanings in the Greek language. It can either mean sir or it can mean Lord. In verse 36, the man says to Jesus, sir. Verse 38, he calls him Lord. 
It's like a light bulb goes off in the man's mind. He comes to the realization that this Jesus is more. Lord, I believe. It's the same light bulb that goes off in the the mind of Thomas, right? When before he sees the risen Jesus, he's like, unless I put my finger in the scar in his hand or in the side, I'm not going to believe that he's risen from the dead. And then he meets the risen Jesus, and in 2028, he says, my Lord and my God. People need to come to this same realization if they're going to trust Jesus. And when it comes to trusting him, there's a spectrum, and people exist along this spectrum. Our job is not to prove anything to anyone. I can't make anyone believe anything. My job is to just present the facts clearly. In fact, I like this definition of successful evangelism. It's defined as sharing the gospel and leaving the results to God. That's what we're called to do. Our task is to help people move along. Bring them to a point of understanding to where they can make an informed decision around Jesus. A person's faith journey looks something like this. You start off with no knowledge. Then you get some knowledge. Then you get right knowledge. And then you move into saving faith. As you look at this spectrum Ask yourself the question, where do I fall within this spectrum? If you're in the place where you have some knowledge, I just want to say, I would love to help you make an informed decision about Jesus. I'd love to sit down with you, talk to you more about who he is, help you to see him in the scriptures. If you're more of like, a, I want to explore on my own type, I'd be happy to recommend books to you. But perhaps the best thing you could do is pick up the Bible, start with the Gospel of John, and start reading a chapter a day and saying, God, if you're real, speak to me. Now, maybe you're in the place of right knowledge. Christianity is not just an acknowledgement of a set of facts. Well, I believe that Jesus existed. Um, uh, you know, he did die on the cross. There's a resurrection. I know basic Bible stories. It's more than that. It's coming into this place of saving faith. What is faith? I would say it like this. Faith is placing the weight of your worldview upon something and expecting it to hold you up securely. Some of us have placed our faith in a philosophy called scientism. I believe that I can only understand true things about the world if science can prove it. Others hold to a materialistic worldview where it's the belief that if I acquire more, if I have more possessions, if I have better experiences, well, then I will truly be happy and satisfied in life. And here's the sad truth about that. No one has ever found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But when we live on the other side of the rainbow and we hear about the unicorns and leprechauns, we want to go chasing the rainbow but it doesn't work. The only worldview 
that will hold you up is faith in Jesus. What does it mean to put the weight of your worldview in Jesus? Well, the Bible calls it discipleship. You follow him. You sit under his teachings. You say that I am going to do what he tells me to do. I'm going to pursue him for the rest of my life. He is my Lord and my master. Listen to me this morning. If you haven't crossed from right knowledge to saving faith, today's the day. You can put your faith in Jesus today. You can start walking with him in the way that you were made to walk with him. Can I ask everyone to bow your heads with me? I just encourage you to give God your attention for just a moment. It's a gift to give God your attention. There's so many things pulling at our attention. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've never really committed my life to Jesus before. I invite you to follow along with me in the quietness of your heart in this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior in the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen.